you know, if I told you that here was a body thrown into a tomb, sealed by a stone, and then the stone was rolled away and the body is alive and victorious, you wouldn't know on the face of it if I was talking about the book of Daniel or the end of each of the gospels. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, it blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 74. I interview Mitchell Chase about typology and allegory. So we look at examples of how we can see Christ in the Old Testament through stories like Daniel and the Lion's Den, the Day of Atonement, the Book of Ruth, the Book of Esther, the Exodus, um, conquering the, the Promised Land, and the Temple. So with no further ado, let's get weird. All right, well, welcome to the show. I'm really excited uh, uh, to be talking about this topic. Uh, this is actually a topic I wanted to kind of hit on for, for quite a while. Um, and you've written a book not only on typology, but also allegory. So we're kind of getting a, you know, a twofer uh, for this episode, which is cool. So uh, tell us a little bit of background about yourself um, and then uh, how this book came about. Well, it's great to be with you, Samuel. And uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife, Stacy, and four boys. Uh, we've lived here for 12 years and uh, moved in 2010 for me to work um, in Louisville and be a student at the Southern Seminary. I was going to do a PhD in biblical studies under Jim Hamilton. And uh, so all of that was the reason for the move. And we've been in Louisville ever since. Um, as our family has grown, uh, there was a church opportunity in 2012 uh, that uh, came available. And the Lord's kindness uh, led us to Cosmos Dale Baptist Church. I'm the preaching pastor there. Uh, I've been the preaching pastor there for 10 years. And uh, as of this past summer, um, my uh, my role as an adjunct at Boyce College and Southern Seminary changed, and I'm a, an associate professor of biblical studies in the School of Theology there. Um, and it's a great joy to be living in Louisville, working in ministry, uh, working with students. Um, life is just the mercy of God, and uh, I'm thankful for these opportunities. We, uh, mm. we love living in Louisville. We're from Texas originally, and... Um, we came in 2010, like I said, for the, the educational purpose. Uh, the Lord has kept us here and uh, just filled our life with blessing. And uh, so that's the, a little bit of the background. And you mm -hmm. also asked about uh, the coming about of the book. Yeah. Well, this particular topic is something I've been interested in for many years, um, not only in academic interests, though that's part of it. Um, when you're in pastoral ministry, you're handling the Bible so much and interpreting Old and New Testament passages so much. It's a, it's a sub typology is a subject that you, you can't avoid in the realm of hermeneutics because typology is so rooted in uh, the history, the history of interpretation. Um, therefore in pastoral ministry and in academic ministry, this was a subject of great appeal to me. And uh, I learned uh, so much about this topic from people like D.A. Carson and Tom Schreiner and Jim Hamilton, G.K. Beale, um, voices that I felt like were trying to speak to the unity of scriptures and how the whole Bible testifies of Christ. Mm. Being able to write on this topic for this series was great because the the 40 question series constrains you to 40 mm. questions. And, uh, and therefore, you've got to be really picky and choosy. Um, these topics are uh, somewhat controversial, I think, but they were um, very stimulating to write on and I hope a, a great help to readers. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
Um, yeah, it's cool that you were able to do typology and allegory uh, in the same volume. And I was actually new to this series. Uh, th this was the, the book that introduced me to that series. Um, and it, it's neat that it's written in that way, that the question format. Um, so it's easy to follow. You can kind of jump around. Um, so it's a, it, was, it was a great, great read. Um, so I want to start out with just maybe explaining, rather than telling you to explain what typology and allegory are, um, really, can you explain what the, the difference between the two are? Because one thing I noticed wow. as I'm reading, there seems to be um, like some crossover. There seems like, you know, can something be both a type and an allegory? Um, there, there's definitely some relationship between them. And um, sometimes it's hard in the early centuries of Christian interpretation to find strong distinction between them. But um, I think as the history of interpretation unfolds, people have been quite comfortable to see allegory as uh, something that relies on particular symbols that might not have to have uh, some kind of uh, historical context, but could be visionary, apocalyptic, uh, parabolic. Mm -hmm. And the ty typology um, is actually um, rooted in historical correspondences. Um, I, I, I do think that even, even if you draw Venn diagrams on these two things and saw uh, examples throughout church history that have been offered. Sometimes those examples might be framed in a more allegorical argument by an interpreter. And other times it might seem like, okay, they're reading this example typologically. Uh, typology is strongly tied to patterns uh, of historical correspondence and escalation. And uh, allegory doesn't really require those things, but instead um, is sometimes built upon a historical or literal sense of a text and tries to extend it into some kind of symbolic or deeper figurative way. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think you see this, especially in genres like uh, apocalyptic literature, yeah. uh, places of parables in Jesus's teachings, where uh, the things that you're reading about aren't actually about those particular things. There's a mm -hmm. referent a referent intended, and we have to be careful readers so that we uh, we don't engage in bad allegory. There are plenty mm -hmm. of examples of very bad allegorical reading. And uh, yeah. so we have, whether we're reading typologically or uh, trying to find a, a figurative or deeper sense to a text, uh, we want to be thoughtful readers, patient. We want to be those uh, wanting a, a, a textual argument and textual warrant. And we want to read in light of the history of interpretation so that we're not trying to read with overly imaginative and highly subjective impulses. Um, those kinds of bad impulses can can lead to all kinds of strange readings. Yeah, that's very yeah. true. And that's helpful. And so I, I think of Jesus, uh, you mentioned parables, he taught in parables. And a lot of those, you know, he would use allegory, one thing, you know, you know a, a crop or a seed to represent uh, something else. Um, so that's helpful. Uh, for someone that's never heard of a type before, can you give us like a, a simple definition of what a type is? Yeah, a type has to do with some kind of image or impression in the biblical narrative. And uh, the word type does relate to a notion of an impression or an image that's been cast into the Old Testament that's looking forward. And uh, the, uh, the Christian understanding of typology is that in the Old Testament, God has actually designed 
characters and um, and institutions, certain offices like the priesthood or the kingship, uh, particular things like the rock in Israel's uh, wilderness wandering or the uh, staff of Moses or um, the bronze serpent, things that uh, are in a an unfolding narrative that are part of the larger redemptive story leading to Christ in those earlier images, those earlier impressions in the biblical uh, text are forward looking by divine design. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to, what we're trying to do in reading typologically is see what earlier correspondences or shadows, if you will, seem to have a Christological shape to them. And Mm -hmm. uh, the coming of Christ is what gives us greater light and clarity into the Old Testament to notice these things that that the divine author has put there. Mm, yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, cool. Yeah, so I just think what, what Christ said about the this sign of Jonah is uh, one of the kind of clearest examples of that. Um, now, do all types lead to Christ? Yeah the the sign of Jonah is a major example in the ministry of Christ because he has he has picked up an Old Testament story. And in Jonah chapter two, we see the prophet Jonah descending into the belly of the fish, being uh, cast out or delivered after a period of days. And um, in the in the Lord Jesus's um, reading of this story, he doesn't dehistoricize it. It's a real story about a real prophet who experienced those very things. But Jonah's life has a correspondence or resonance at a Christological level. And when Christ reads it that way, he's not reading into Jonah's story um, something that wasn't meant to be understood or something that wasn't there. He's simply reading the prophet Jonah in light of the Old Testament storyline as a forward-pointing character and uh, a deliverance of a three-day pattern that Christ himself will fulfill um, in his own resurrection. There is a a typological reading that Jesus engages in. Um, Same thing in John 3, when he talks about the bronze serpent being lifted up and how the son of man will be lifted up. Uh, These are typological readings of Old Testament stories. And if you go back into Numbers uh, 21 with the bronze serpent, or if you go into Jonah 2 with the, the descent and the ascent of Jonah, you might not look at those stories initially and think, oh, here's an obvious messianic pattern. But when you read the Old Testament stories in light of the whole, then you see that Christological patterns and momentum have been developing all along. And it's not strange to read those stories that way as Christians. Uh, We actually go into the Old Testament with the very hermeneutics of Christ himself who Mm -hmm. read the Old Testament stories this way. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Because sometimes um, if you're unfamiliar, it can sort of seem like we're you're, we're digging into territory uh, that we that we shouldn't um, that we're like mythologizing uh, thinking it mythologically I, I guess I should say uh, more of like a mystic I guess is the word I'm looking for um, kind of way of, of reading the scripture um, but uh, I wanted to ask you do all types have their fulfillment in Christ or are there examples of types that have their fulfillment maybe in a different character. Well, I think that we can find um, the impulse of the New Testament to see things in light of Christ's person and work. But because of who Christ is, we see a number of things in relation to Christ, like the church or the seed of the serpent, ultimately the evil one himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that to read the Old Testament with a Christological impulse 
also sees things in relation to Christ, like his church or the hope of new creation that will be accomplished by him at the second coming, or even the defeat of the evil one uh, at his second coming in Revelation. These Old Testament stories have a Christological significance, not because they all will correspond to Christ himself, but even because they will correspond to something in relation to Christ. Right. Something about his victory, something about Christ's people. Um, we can think of uh, how elements of the Israelites in the Old Testament might correspond to things in the New Testament church. And there's a kind of type anti-type relationship. But the reason these relationships exist is because of Christ. Right. And, and therefore, to see things directly connecting to Christ or in relation to him, um, I think is the, the right way to see typology. The Bible exists for Christ. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. That's one thing when you study typology, uh, you really, it's so mind blowing and eye opening to see how all these things um, point forward. Uh, it's so cool. Um, are they only recognizable in hindsight or should we be reading, because you mentioned both first and second coming. So should we be reading, uh, you know, typology in terms of Christ's second coming and projecting that out um, in that way? I, I do think the Old Testament um, foretells the first and second advents of Christ. And it's not clear in the Old Testament before Christ how all of that would be spliced out spans of time that would unfold, certain details about the first and second advents. Um, however, the Old Testament was designed by the Lord and guided by his inspiring spirit um, and providentially ordered so that when Christ's ministry, his, uh, his uh, telling of not just um, events going on in his contemporaries day, but a future and final judgment of the wicked and a vindication of his people, Christ is announcing that he will bring to pass what the Old Testament has anticipated. Mm. If I'm it, it, an example that I think you could point to are uh, passages in the prophets that talk about a day of the Lord, for instance, and a day of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, was anticipating some kind of historical and near horizon judgment on one of God's enemies. Mm. Uh, the prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel would warn their neighboring pagan nations about the day of the Lord. We also know, though, that the Psalms and the prophets envision a time when all the nations will be brought to account, and that Christ in Psalm 2 will be the anointed king who rules the, the nations with a rod of iron. Um, and therefore, whatever historical and temporal judgments have occurred throughout history, even prophesied by the Old Testament authors that, will, that were fulfilled in our past— they must have themselves been shadows of and anticipations of the future and final judgment. So even a like lowercase d, day of the Lord, that was foreshadowing and is foreshadowing the capital D, day of the Lord, uh, that will occur at the coming of Christ. So I think even those historical judgments we've seen throughout biblical history are foreshadowing the second coming of Christ when he will bring all the wicked to account. So it's something like that, similar to um, the, uh, or parallel to the notions of uh, the deliverance of God's people. If you see throughout the, the Old Testament storyline and, uh, and specific accounts in the Torah, maybe with the life of Israel or um, celebrations of deliverance by the psalmists, these are temporal 
historical deliverances. And these, yeah. these people who were delivered later died and await uh, the coming of the Lord. Now, when Christ returns, these people who may have experienced some kind of earthly or temporal deliverance, they will be raised from the dead with resurrection embodied immortality. Um, this would tell me that past deliverances are also shadows of something looking forward. They are types of the future deliverance and final vindication of God's people. So I think type and anti-type can work that way. Also seeing these in relation to Christ, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's just such an incredible, um, I just remember when I first started learning about typology, uh, just how cool it is. And as you mentioned, um, you'll notice those things as you go back in the Old Testament and how they point forward. Yep. Um, and it just paints the Old Testament in an, an entirely different light, uh, which is really so incredible. Um, so, you know, I was going to save this question for later, but, you know, it begs the question, the original authors, right, did they realize uh, that these characters and events were pointing forward to something else? Is there I, any way I, of knowing that? Yeah, I think the biblical authors did have a strong sense that the hmm. things that they were going to be writing anticipated what was to come. And I, I get this, um, you know, one textual warrant for this is First Peter chapter one, where Peter says that these prophets who wrote of the coming mm -hmm. sufferings and glories of Christ, they, they inquired about what they were writing. Oh, wow. And they knew that the spirit of Christ in them was foretelling things beyond their days. They didn't wow. see everything as clearly as we will. However, the biblical authors, um, I'm convinced they had a consciousness. That's the mm -hmm. word. They had a consciousness that what they were writing uh, is part of God's overall self-disclosure of who he is and his ways in the world, and especially his redemptive plan that would bring about the Genesis 315 uh, son, the, the seed of the woman. Um, now, I also think it's um, mm. it doesn't have to be limited to the mind of the biblical author. I think we can recognize that biblical authors are conscious of messianic hope and advancing it. I think Moses had a strong sense of the exodus and even his own life shadowing things that were to come. But mm. uh, I think the divine authorship of scripture seals the deal on this even beyond the minds of the human authors, because sure. the Holy Spirit knits together the two testaments. Yeah. I mean, in the in the Bible, you have over 40 different authors. You've got them writing in multiple languages. Uh, you've got them writing over many centuries. And the Old Testament itself was composed over a period of about a thousand years. Uh, you have extraordinary spans of time. Well, what is it that has uh, given confidence to Christian interpreters that we can read the New Testament in light of the old and the old in light of the new? What preserves its unity? Uh, the answer above all and beneath all must be the divine authorship of scripture, which has united the two testaments in the divine mind of the maker and giver. And therefore, um, we, we recognize that the writings of these biblical authors are inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's telling this story, anticipating and testifying of the son. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and I agree I really think that typology can work as such a, a great apologetic because mm. when you when you start looking at all these different types, it's almost impossible not to see God's hand in the writings. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just it's, it's remarkable to see, as you mentioned, how could an author that had written thousand years prior um, about a brazen serpent and then and then Jesus goes and interprets it that way? It's right. it's just it's it's 
it's pretty unbelievable. Um, to piggyback on that point, Samuel, there a strong role that typological reading had for the early church was an apologetic purpose. Hmm. They were very convinced of the unity of the scriptures, the authorship of, of the scripture and the divine mind, so that when you read from the old into the new testaments, you're not seeing some kind of compartmentalization or segregation um, within God's plan, but instead the fulfillment hmm. of promises, the antitype to types, the blazing sun that eclipses all the earlier shadows um, that had anticipated his coming. If if we grant um, this this way of, of reading the scriptures, you really can, I think, make a strong case to appeal to the, um, the, the, uh, the minds of interpreters about the connections between the Testaments and the numerous patterns and figures and events that, you know, they either all happen to be coincidental and overly clever and man-made, sure. which would, which would be quite a miracle in itself, right. but, yeah. or, or we can, we can acknowledge what seems to be the more obvious and, and Christian understanding of that relationship between the old and new testaments. And that is what God had shadowed in the old Testament era he has now brought into the dawning light of his son, the person and work of Christ. Uh, the New Testament um, church, the early interpreters and the early fathers in those early centuries, they uh, they were convinced that this was a strong apologetic, careful inner biblical connections that would demonstrate the truthfulness and authenticity of Scripture. Now, I think you would agree there are also really great arguments about the truthfulness and inspiration of scripture, strong arguments that deal with the textual accuracy of the Old and New Testament transmission of texts. And there are great arguments about the historicity of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. We value, we value apologetic arguments as believers that can help bolster our faith and give us reasons um, to, to explain to others why we're not closing our minds to believe what we believe. However, despite all of those good arguments, I do think typological reading has something valuable to contribute here because it requires careful Bible study across the Testaments, multiple languages, many centuries. Mm -hmm. And what you're, what you're acknowledging is a beauty, mm -hmm. a beauty in design that is not man-made, but mm -hmm. instead comes from the hand of God through the lives and, and words of these biblical authors. So it is a beautiful thing. I think it bolsters our confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, cool. So, I, you know, let's go ahead and, and see if we can dive in a little bit and look at some examples um, for, you know, for some it. that, you know, haven't really looked into this topic before. We've talked about uh, Jonah and the whale. Uh, we've talked about the brazen serpent. Um, what are some other just kind of like, you know, slam dunks or home run examples yeah. that, that you can give us? Well, the the... Uh, bronze serpent is an interesting one that I had mentioned earlier, right? And it's not a, a character like a Moses or a David would be. So it can be surprising that even something like a bronze serpent would sure, typify yeah. Christ. Yeah. Um, but um, there, are, there are some unnamed characters that I think can be pulled out into the open here too. I'm convinced, uh, by the way, that we can read Old Testament um, characters that aren't identified in the New Testament as types to also be types because we're imitating the hermeneutics of the apostles, um, which, is, which is why I would say something like Isaac 
in the Old Testament story, like Genesis 22, uh, functions as a type of Christ who goes to be sacrificed, uh, to be uh, sent by his father onto the altar, and, um, and then is delivered from death. Now, the way Isaac is delivered is apart from death. We know he doesn't actually die, yeah. but typological correspondences don't require a match in every case. You know, Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Jesus was not swallowed by a fish. Yeah. We don't have to have a matching in every case, but conceptual, verbal, historical uh, correspondences that can help us see uh, a mold or a pattern that's being recalled. In Isaac's case, um, Samuel, I think that we can see Isaac as a type of Christ because he's the son of Abraham, the promised son. His birth was foretold. His birth was because of the miraculous power of God in the womb of Sarah, who had been barren. Yeah. And, um, and then Christ, as the promised son of Abraham, is going to be given on the altar as a sacrifice. Yeah. In this same area where Abraham travels to Mount Moriah, Second Chronicles tells us in Second Chronicles 3 that this would later be the region where the temple in Jerusalem was to be built. And of course, the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom at the death of Christ, who is the father's son. And he was not delivered apart from death, but after death, through death, defeating death and victory. Um, these are ways where we can look at an Old Testament character. Uh, the New Testament doesn't identify Isaac as a type, but I think he shines brilliantly as a type when we see the ways the New Testament authors have read the old. And, and we can we can put Isaac forward and say he, too, fits these kinds of correspondences and expectations. And uh, we can proclaim him, I think, confidently as a as an interpreter. Um, mm. The New Testament authors uh, have not identified every Old Testament type. They've not give us, given us any indication that they have. Um, mm. And we need, to, we need to study the way they read the Old Testament so that we can read the Old Testament that way as well. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I love that example. It's, it's hard not to see that when you see a son being sacrificed. Um, so I love that. Uh, do you have any more, can you give us an example of more obscure, um, yeah. one that may be difficult uh, to kind well, of see? I, I do think one that's challenging for people that has been identified in church history is something like the court of Rahab. This is a fascinating example in interpretive history because the court of Rahab features in the book of Joshua. And the story is that Rahab and her household are going to be spared because they have given shelter to the spies and protected them uh, with their words uh, from the, uh, the, the soldiers who have come and, um, and Rahab sends them in another direction. She's instructed to tie a cord or scarlet thread in her window. And uh, when the army of Israel approaches Jericho, uh, they will ensure that Rahab and her household are spared. Well, throughout church history, um, interpreters have again and again put forward Rahab's cord as a type of Christ. And you think, well, okay, you, you, you might have been able to convince me, say, about Isaac or, or even convince me about the bronze serpent because Jesus said that in John 3. Right. No, nobody in the New Testament said anything about Rahab's cord. How can you get from the cord of Rahab to Christ? <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I think the way we want to do it textually is to say the color is not the main link, even though it's been interesting for interpreters who have made that emphasis. Here you have this crimson colored cord, crimson blood on the cross. You know, they just want to make that uh, sure. a, an easy equation. 
I, I wouldn't want to go about it that way. Instead, I would want to say that the court of Rahab is something put upon her window right after the Israelites have entered into or are entering uh, across the Jordan into the promised land. And um, this is what the Lord brought them out of Egypt for. Their departure from Egypt to head to the promised land was also in the 10th plague conducted under something spread on a household. Hmm. Now, in that case, it was not a scarlet cord. You have the blood of a lamb that spread on the doorposts and the lintel, and that those who had the, the blood on the doorposts, judgment would pass over them. I think right. the scarlet cord is meant to remind the reader literarily and textually about the Passover, that just as judgment passed mm -hmm. over those who were marked appropriately on the household in Exodus chapter uh, 10 and 11, the cord of Rahab is that which would signal the judgment of God to pass over that household when Jericho was going to be uh, conquested. And, mm -hmm. um, and just as the Passover anticipates deliverance for those who have taken proper refuge, so has the court of Rahab anticipated deliverance for those who take proper refuge. It's just that the escalation and correspondence from Passover to the New Testament is Christ. He is our refuge. He is the one who, in whom is pardoned from the judgment of God that passes over us. And the same correspondence exists from the court of Rahab to the cross, because Christ is our refuge that covers us as the people of God. So I think we get to from Rahab to Christ by noticing how Rahab parallels the Passover, which gets us to Christ. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's work like that that takes a little mm -hmm. more textual and literary uh, spade work, but it's worth the time and it's worth the effort to see that the biblical authors have helped us parallel Rahab's event and the deliverance in Exodus 10 through 12 with the 10th plague. And if we can see those correspondences textually, then I'm not just reading something into the text. I'm not just making mm -hmm. wild leaps and bounds. I'm trying to show something that's literally and textually demonstrable. And uh, that's a really good place to be as an interpreter, to make a textual case that makes the reader go, okay, there's something to that. There's something to that. I can see what you've shown me here and here. I've noticed those parallels. What am I going to do with them? That, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So Rahab's, Rahab's cord has dazzled interpreters for many centuries. And I would not say interpreters are wrong from seeing in the court of Rahab's story a um, type of Christ. Mm -hmm. I think it's about I think it's more about how we make the case. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And how we make the case needs to be a literary and textual one. Yeah. No, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're going backward and and forward. Um, and it's, it's right. also, <laughs> yeah, right. I and mean, it's That's neat right. to, to think that, you know, the, you know, original audience, you know, prior to even Christ would have been also called back to say, again, this is a call back to Passover. Um, that is so, so cool. Um, okay. Awesome. Um, so I have a couple e examples, well, like a few that I want to ask um, specifically sure. about. Um, first being the Day of Atonement in the Azazel Goat. Mm. Um, is there yeah. typology at play there? I think there is. You know, Leviticus 16, with this sacrifice and the goat 
that the high priest lays both hands upon and sends the good away. I would say that this anticipates the work of Christ who bears our sin outside the camp. Mm. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews makes a big deal in Hebrews 13 that Jesus bore our reproach and shame outside the camp, and we should join him by bearing whatever reproach or shame comes upon believers in the disciples' life. We need to be willing to suffer uh, and take up our cross. Uh, however, the correspondence remains, though, doesn't it, between the Day of Atonement, goat that's sent out into the wilderness, and uh, that, that transfer of sin symbolically, if you will, and the actual bearing of sin and the satisfying of the wrath of God outside the camp, if you will, outside the temple complex, outside the city of Jerusalem on Mount Golgotha, Mount Calvary. Um, I do see a typological um, correspondence and escalation with the Day of Atonement. And, and, I, and I think that Hebrews is probably our best New Testament example of a textual case for that, because Christ is described as our priest and high priest who has gone behind the veil and uh, gone into the heavenly places of which the earthly tent was a copy. And the true tent, the heavenly places, is, the, is where our Christ, our high priest, is enthroned and seated at the right hand of God. That is describing the final and full uh, enactment and accomplishment of what the Day of Atonement anticipated. Uh, so Hebrews gives us some textual warrant to make that connection, and uh, I think it's a a powerful and compelling one to see. Mm, yeah. So I have a follow up question on that actually because yeah. I, I've heard that that explanation as you said um, so clearly that okay we see sin is being um, poured onto the goat just as our sin was poured on Christ. Uh, so I, I love that correlation. Um, however, I've heard people interpret this differently. Um, specifically, uh, I know Michael Morales wrote about this in Whom Shall Ascend uh, the Mountain of the Lord. I believe, I believe that's the title, but um, right. it's on Leviticus, and he talks about this specifically. Um, and I want to know if, if, if type, if, if this can be like multiple types at the same time. Like, you know, so his interpretation was that the Azazel goat represents it, it, that that's the bad goat because it's sent out into the wilderness and it's punished uh, where we have the other goat that is going to the house of the Lord to be in the presence um, in the holy place. And so he saw that as typology of the second coming of the final judgment. Is it hmm. possible for those to, for those both interpretations to coexist? Yeah, I think in the complexity of how interpretation can work, um, there can be layers of significance where Christ inaugurates something and his second coming will accomplish and consummate uh, whatever his inauguration anticipates. Um, I wouldn't want to quibble with Morales's uh, interpretation there. I love that book that you referenced that he uh, wrote on uh, biblical theology of Leviticus. And um, I, I think the tricky part is that second goat, the Azazel goat that's sent out. There is some dispute among Leviticus scholars Hmm. As, as to how to understand this particular goat. Is this like a demon that uh, is is uh, in the wilderness and this goat is sent out to the place of the unclean and the in a place of exile? Um, is it simply a scapegoat to represent the transfer of sins symbolically? So the, the difficulty of, of this 
particular nuance is that there is some disagreement among, mm-hmm. among Old Testament scholars as to how to parse out what exactly this goat represents. But, uh, and I'm confident Morales would agree with this as well, that the transfer of sin and the fact that it had been preceded by the sprinkling of blood in the most holy place and then moving outward, all of this represents the need for atonement, which Christ himself would accomplish. And therefore, a typological connection can still remain, uh, Mm -hmm. even if judgment of the wicked and the purging of all sin will be accomplished at his second coming. There there is still no doubt uh, an echo of that great finished work that will be seen and felt at the return of Christ. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yes. I wanted to ask that because I actually love I love both interpretations and they fit. I think they fit both really well. Um, And I thought, you know, do they have to be pitted against one another? You know, it seems like it it can work both ways. So I'm I'm content to see. Obviously, we know that that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of our atonement. So we can see that. well, and Leviticus 16 was such an important passage in that book itself, mm-hmm. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, that is. Um, and then within the Pentateuch, I think uh, Stephen Dempster is the one who is who uh, first drew my attention to this in uh, in some of his writings. And Dempster argues that Leviticus 16 is the literary center of the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. Um, with that kind of importance being placed upon the Day of Atonement, we would expect a strong type, anti-type connection yeah. with Leviticus 16 and the work of Christ. Uh, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of that and that Christ is our high priest who has done that blood atonement work uh, mm-hmm. to, please the, to, to please the Lord. Yep, yep, yep. Cool, cool, cool. Um, all right, awesome. So next I want to talk about um, the book of Esther. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's one of those books that, uh, anyway, um, it just feels like it, it can work as typology. Uh, so, um, yeah, what, what's, uh, what's the typology at play in Esther? I mean, I think there's multiple um, interpretations you can offer that are typological. I think you could notice how Mordecai, is uh, is someone along with Esther that uh, works on behalf of the people. They are under the threat of judgment and annihilation, and uh, the evil villain Haman has been doing his worst to annihilate the Jews. Mordecai urges Esther. Esther intercedes for the people. I think the uh, the work of Mordecai and Esther have a, a Christological shadow over mm-hmm. those two personages, yeah. and that. Um, that they can they can embody, if you will, a deliverer uh, motif, and Haman is an example of a villain who is defeated. He dies. He experiences the temporal judgment of uh, of uh, earthly uh, earthly ruin, and ironically as well, because what he prepared as gallows for Mordecai becomes the very means of his own death, and um, and then Haman's death, like all the death of the wicked foreshadows the ruin of the wicked that awaits them at the day of the Lord. And then you also see not only the defeat of Haman, you see the deliverance of the Jews, where God has provided providentially the deliverance for his people and the annihilation that hung over them did not get executed, but instead uh, they are vindicated. And that itself anticipates the vindication of the people of God. So in, in the book of Esther, you've got savior motif, You've got the defeat of the wicked. You've got the the deliverance of the people of God. Mm -hmm. All of these things, Samuel, are 
are exactly the kinds of things we would want to notice in narratives to say, how do these things point us to Christ? Well, he is the ultimate deliverer. He's a true and greater Mordecai or a true and greater Esther. And he brings about vindication for his people in an eternal and lasting way. And the wicked should tremble before him because at his return, they will be facing the eternal ruin and, and uh, judgment that these earthly and uh, biblical stories like Esther um, typify and foreshadow. Uh, so I think you have multiple typological conclusions you could draw uh, in the book of Esther that enrich the story. Now, of course, what this requires in order for me to say what I've just said about Esther is that I'm reading Esther convinced that the canon is the best and widest context to interpret those 10 chapters. Hmm. A, a reader might push back and say, well, you know, um, Mitch, the uh, book of Esther doesn't mention the Messiah. Uh, it doesn't mention the final judgment. Why are you reading those things yeah. in your, how are you interpreting that in these 10 chapters? What I'm trying to do is read the book of Esther outside also the book of Esther's 10 chapters. I'm reading it in light of the Old Testament storyline. I'm reading it in light of the New Testament era that was to come. I'm wanting the whole canon and all of its brilliance and forward-leaning Christological impulse to influence the way I read all Old Testament books. And that means my Christological impulses are going to affect the way I read Esther. I'm going to anticipate the day of the of the Lord's deliverance of the people of God and destruction of the wicked, because a story like Esther nurtures and stimulates that hope. So it will increase my longing for the antitype to those things. And, um, and that requires reading Esther canonically, which I think is the Christian way to read the book of Esther. Ultimately, we want to read the Old Testament mm. in light of the whole. Mm. Awesome. I love that. Uh, cool. So my next example I want, I want to discuss is uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Yes. Tell so, us what uh, you can about that. Yeah. So Daniel in the lion's den is a fascinating story, isn't it? Because here is a man cast into death, right? Death by lion. That's the goal of the, of the king. And um, when the king casts him in, a stone is rolled over the top. Mm. And then when the stone is rolled away, uh, Daniel emerges delivered. Mm. Um, you know, if I told you that here was a body thrown into a tomb, sealed by a stone, and then the stone was rolled away and the body is alive and victorious, you wouldn't know on the face of it if I was talking about the book of Daniel or the end of each of the gospels in the New Testament, because the, sure. the resonances are so powerful. Yeah. You think, okay, can you give me some more specifics? Are you in the Old Testament or the New? Um, yeah. Now, of course, the book of Daniel is a historical story, historical prophet, historical threat of death by lion, and even earlier, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered through fire. You have these threats of death and these deliverances from death. And with Daniel, there's a tomb and a stone involved uh, that would have normally meant his demise, right? Somebody goes into that tomb, stone is rolled over it. They're not expecting life when that, when that stone is rolled away. Yeah. Uh, those lions are going to demolish that person. Yeah. Um, therefore, the book of Daniel, like the character of Jonah and like the character of Isaac and like the character of Moses, these are people who have faced the threats of death and whose lives experience the delivering hand of God. And in that pattern and motif, 
you see forward pointing to Christ's own death, his actual death, and his deliverance from death by the power of God. So correspondence and escalation. The book of Daniel is right along with that, right? Contributing a story about a man, and um, as well as in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mm -hmm. who are delivered uh, from death by the power of God. Um, We we see Christologically that those things once again prepare for Christ. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, once you point it out, I think I read that. I actually never heard of this uh, as typology before, uh, but it's so obvious. Um, it's impossible not to see it after you point it out. Um, uh, yeah, there's such a connection there. Um, that's great. Now, so before we move on to allegory, I have, I have one. So you wrote a little bit of, about Ruth, but I have... Um, I was going to push a little bit further and see uh, what you what you thought about this because this is something that, as I read Ruth, they it seems to jump out at me. Um, so I, just, I would like for you to just basically comment uh, on that. Um, you know, at the beginning we see uh, Naomi um, and her uh, her daughter, uh, a non Jew, uh, you know, basically vows her, her her life to her, follows her back home. Um, so I kind of saw that as being. Uh, a, foresh- a foreshadowing of the church being grafted in. Um, and then we have this harvest that, that, that takes place. Um, and we have this, you know, for me, it popped out at the, it wasn't until the end of the harvest until there was a marriage between Boaz and Ruth. And so for me, that pointed forward to the second coming. Um, mm. So now we're in this kingdom age and, and we're going to see a marriage at the end of, of this age. So is that a right way to kind of see those connections? I mean, I think I think that there is something something to what you've just said. I think that Ruth, as a Moabite, um, is is a representative of nations coming to know the one true God and leaving their idolatry, uh, leaving the entanglements of of paganism, and confessing Yahweh, which Ruth does. Um, I would be willing to see uh, Ruth and Boaz's marriage as a kind of foreshadowing by inauguration and consummation ultimately um, Mm -hmm. about Christ taking a bride from the nations that on the, at the cross, he purchases a people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And then he returns for his bride. Um, I would probably make the case less from Ruth and Naomi's relationship as I would more Ruth and Boaz's relationship. So I would probably anchor my arguments there personally as an interpreter. And I would make much of Christ in the church being foreshadowed by these kinds of relationships of Boaz and Ruth, since I think Boaz is a type of Christ. And that by Ruth coming to Christ, we see even in Jesus's ministry, Gentiles coming to him mm-hmm. in the ministry of Paul. He has such a ministry to Gentiles in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. We see more than the Moabites coming to confess and know the one true God. And yet um, that that foreshadows the day when all the nations will be brought before him, confess him, every uh, tongue confess and every knee bow, uh, confessing Jesus as Lord. Um, I think the the arguments I would anchor more with with Ruth and, um, and Boaz's relationship rather than with Ruth and Naomi. But, you know, I think that the important thing is if we're trying to draw certain Christ church conclusions, what's our textual case? And yeah. so you uh, you would just want to, as an interpreter, say, all right, what about Ruth and Naomi or what about Ruth and Boaz? Do I want to dig in on and try to draw some correspondences? Mm-hmm. And um, And you might persuade readers. You might persuade interpreters. There might be some people who look at that and say, Samuel, 
There's nothing in the book of Ruth about the bride of Christ or about the second coming or about the work of the Messiah on the cross. You're just reading that into the book of Ruth. And I would say, well, I mean, I understand the concern there because we don't want to misunderstand Ruth. But what does Ruth exist to do as a story? And Ruth exists for the genealogy at the end, which takes us to David. The story Mm -hmm. of Ruth is about God's behind the scenes, providential work, preparing to raise up a monarchy in David uh, during the the, uh, dark era of the judges when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So God was going to raise up David and his ancestors are Boaz and Ruth. The very last word of Ruth is David. So there's a Davidic uh, theme that's strong. And Mm -hmm. David is born in Bethlehem, just like Boaz was before him. So I think that because David is a type of Christ, the resonances between David and Boaz strengthen the idea of Boaz anticipating Christ. So again, Samuel, what I'm trying to do is say, how can I understand the book of Ruth historically? What did it contribute to the Old Testament setting, the era of the judges? What was God's purpose in Ruth, you know, in initially and with those surrounding books of the Old Testament? But more than that, what does the book of Ruth contribute to the storyline of Scripture? canonically, how do we read Ruth? So I'm not trying to take away from Ruth. I'm trying to read Ruth as richly and as thickly as a book as possible. And that means reading it as a Christian with the canon as the context. I don't want to make less of the history of Ruth. I want to see all that that history was contributing toward. And that history in Ruth is contributing toward a messianic hope that Christ would fulfill as the seed of the woman who descended from Boaz. And, um, and there, therefore, I think we have a textual case to make. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so I want to pivot now to allegory. Um, okay. Yeah, so I think you, you, you defined it earlier. Uh, can you give us some examples um, uh, of allegory that we can see? Yeah, I'm, I, when, we, when we talk about allegory, we are we are definitely moving into the rockier waters hermeneutically. And there would be some interpreters um, in our day who would simply say, I've read so many bad allegorical readings in church history. Allegory should not be used to interpret the scriptures. Let's just get rid of that entirely. Um, And they might say, maybe my book should have just been 40 questions about typology (laughs) and just left out allegory altogether. Um, Or maybe, you know, Um, one chapter on allegory, namely, we shouldn't do it or something like that. Um, But the truth of the matter is allegorical reading is um, dependent on understanding what kind of literature I'm reading as an interpreter. And if I'm reading something like a parable of Christ, you gave uh, an example earlier of Jesus's parable about the seed and the soils. Well, if we take this example, uh, Samuel, here's Jesus, and we could say the, the example in Matthew 13. You've got a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. There are different soils, different kinds of growth. There's a harvest of one that is a, a great and tremendous multiplied yield. The others perform rather poorly, and some not at all. And, and therefore, the good soil gets the emphasis in the parable. As an interpreter, we know Jesus is not actually talking about real soil. He's not talking about actual seed, and he's not talking about actual plants or harvesting. He's making a point about the seed of the kingdom gospel. 
He's talking about the ways people receive the word sown by Christ himself and his uh, disciples. What we're doing by interpreting those um, parables that way is we are understanding that there is a symbolic or figurative intent in the language. I'm, I'm comfortable saying we should read the parables of Jesus allegorically, because to interpret something allegorically is to say this word here means this other thing over here. In other words, the, uh, the, the plain um, sense or, or, a, or a surface level meaning of the word doesn't get at the intent. There's something that's a referent, something that's implied. And I have to reflect on that as an interpreter. You know, I have to think in this parable of Jesus, if he's talking about a net and separating fish, what is he talking about? If he's talking about, you know, the good Samaritan, what are, what's a proper referent for that story and for different uh, events or characters? If he's talking about the prodigal son and the son that stays home, how should I interpret those two individuals who were disobedient to their father in different ways? Um, what, what's the point of the parables? And I would argue that, well, we're going to need some allegorical tools. We're going to need we're going to need some resources to see symbols and figures representing something. And the Old Testament is a wealth and resource for interpreting uh, the allegorical um, literature in the New Testament, like these parables. Hmm. If you read in the Old Testament, though, to leave the new for a moment, the Old Testament has visions, oracles. The book of Daniel, right after the uh, deliverance from the den of lions that we talked about earlier, you hmm. get into Daniel 7, Daniel 8. You're going to need some allegorical tools because we're talking about beasts coming out of the sea. We're talking about a goat and a ram in Daniel 8 with different horns ramming at each other. Well, these aren't actual animals at all. They represent nations. So we're talking about symbols, and it requires us being strongly dialed in to the world of Scripture's symbols and the imagination that uh, is cultivated with that literature. That means uh, allegorical reading is, is risky because as an interpreter, I might think, well, the way I'm going to interpret this allegory is by looking at this contemporary referent. And I'm going to say, well, you know, if I if I see this particular figure, that must mean this particular thing in the 1900s or this thing in the 21st century or this. So they they look at something, they read it as a symbol, but they try to interpret it in light of our contemporary age. Instead, I think we should see that where figures and symbols exist in the Old and New Testaments, the referent point for the reader would be in the past and especially in the Old Testament world. Um, we would be wiser as interpreters to look at it that way. If we, if we don't make a textual case for our allegorical or symbolic interpretations, I feel like we're, we're running the same risk as those who were bad allegorizers in the Old Testament, in the, uh, in the um, uh, Old Testament, but in the, in church history, where you see examples of abuses and uh, a reader nowadays might look at something that Augustine or Origen or one of these writers have said, and they'd say, there is no way, there's no way that text means what they just suggested. Um, you wouldn't get to that point textually. And I would say, well, as an interpreter, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's separate a bad reading of a parable from an accurate reading of the symbols. Let's separate a bad allegorical 
uh, suggestion from a rightful reading of a figurative part of scripture. And that's more challenging, I think. Um, even the reformers who were strong critics, like, you know, Martin Luther, as an example here, strong critic of allegorical abuses in, in uh, church history. It's difficult to avoid uh, seeing in their very writings as reformers allegorical and figurative interpretations. They themselves would engage in typological and allegorical readings, but they were trying to correct abuses and really deep uh, deepen and dig down into the literal and historical sense of the text, which they were concerned had been lost by overreading things figuratively. Um, and, I, and I think they have very legitimate concerns, as would I as a reader. I, I think convincing someone of typological reading is much easier to do than trying to read rightly in an allegorical way and putting forward a possible referent for a symbol, a color, a number, a character, um, a parable. That that takes more care and I think greater caution. Sure. We still have to interpret the text. So Daniel 8, about the ram and the goat, they mean something. Yeah, yeah. The beast coming out of the sea in Daniel 7, they mean something. The figures in Revelation with that highly uh, symbolic and figurative imagery those apocalyptic settings mean something. Yeah. They're just more challenging. And I think every reader interpretively uh, can recognize the greater challenge allegorical reading has. So there it is. You know, we, that, that's just the, the reality of it. We don't want to shirk away from it. We just want to acknowledge it and be much more humble and cautious about what we propose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that is a, a good word of caution. Um, I know I've seen that specifically uh, in apocalyptic literature Daniel, Revelation, yeah. specifically, where it, it's obvious that it is allegory. Uh, and so I think the issue with that is that, um, you know, I want to talk about some examples that, that may not be so obvious, but you're forced at that point to then apply, hmm. um, to apply that symbol to something. And so, you know, people right. uh, will definitely vary in their their interpretations of that uh, and can come up with some, some wild things. But... Uh, Anyway, let's let's I have let me see. I got three examples I want to talk about uh, for sure. allegory. Um, not that we're confined to that or anything, but uh, the Exodus. How is that an example of, of allegory? Well, depending on how people understand allegory, some people might be more comfortable using the term Exodus and typology together. And the, the Exodus is a type of what's to come. But um, there there is if somebody has an impulse to say the Exodus symbolizes something, or there is a figurative element to the Passover lamb, I think they're trying to read something uh, that's a historical story as taking on a deeper sense because of God's divine plan. And in, in that way, um, I think that the Exodus of Israel requires a deeper um, examination by interpreters. Same thing with the wilderness wandering. If I looked at the Exodus story, and I said, here are the Israelites taken through the Red Sea. Here are the Israelites going through the wilderness. Here are the Israelites going into the promised land under Joshua. And I say, well, you know, I think that the divine intent behind all of this is that the Christian life itself is being foreshadowed because we have been delivered, not from Egypt, but from sin and condemnation. And we're pilgrims now in this world, passing through in the wilderness of this fallen age. And mm -hmm. we are heading toward our inheritance in the consummation of the age uh, mm -hmm. to come and uh, the new heavens and new earth. Well, somebody might say, 
Well, I think you're just looking at the Exodus and wilderness stories of Israel, and you're just seeing symbolic things or, or you're treating it allegorically. And I would say, well, you know, the Old Testament is meant to serve the new. It's meant to point forward. And those stories are recorded for a reason. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul reflects on being delivered through the sea and being guided by the cloud and being fed in the wilderness, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, the things that happened to the Israelites were recorded for our sake, he says. They were, mm. they were given for us as examples. Mm. And, um, and, I, and I think the Apostle Paul mm. would read the stories of the Old Testament people of God, and he would see important lessons and, um, and a deeper significance and symbolism happening in those lives for the new covenant community. He seems to at least write that way in his letters. Mm. And, um, and, and I think that we should as well. We should uh, recognize it in Galatians 4. Paul says that... Uh, you know, the promised children are those who are like Isaac and the people who are of the flesh and of this world. They're like Ishmael, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the child of the slave woman. And he wants his mm-hmm. readers to see that even the historical narrative of Abraham and his lineage could take on a greater significance spiritually, because not everybody from the physical line of Abraham was of the spiritual faith of Abraham. That Mm. was a difficult lesson for even Jesus's contemporaries to learn, for the Mm. Pharisees to be called a den of vipers, to be called whitewashed tombs, people who were of their father, the devil. They would say, hey, we're from the line of Abraham. And Jesus might say, well, not from the not from the children of Isaac, spiritually speaking. And he, all of a sudden what he's doing is he would be like Paul in Galatians 4, reading them through the lens of the Ishmaelites, those who were from Abraham, but in a worldly fleshly sense and not children of promise. Um, so that's, that's a way of trying to take the Old Testament stories, whether it's Abraham's story, whether it's the Song of Songs, whether it's a Daniel vision, whether it's apocalyptic imagery in Revelation or a parable in Jesus, um, and to say these things are recorded that we might see something in addition to the language that's here, and we see it canonically anchored so that we have a textual warrant for those observations. If I'm just going to read stories or parables or, you know, um, uh, visions in the Old Testament and say, well, this represents this and this represents that. And someone says, well, how do you know that though? And I say, well, you know, it's just what I think. It's just, it's just my gut, you know, so just subjectively. Well, that's, that might be all fine and good for that person's own uh, d- desire to uh, try to read it the best that they can, but they can't make an objective case for another interpreter to be persuaded. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. If, in other words, if all they can say is, well, uh, I just really feel like this is what it means. Or to me, I think it represents this. You know, that's not the kind of reading of the text we want to do. We want to say, all right, if you're going to suggest something about the Abraham stories, or if you're going to suggest something about Rahab's cord, or if you're going to suggest something about the Song of Songs, make a case for me. Make me a case. Build an argument. Point to some texts. So if I'm going to read typologically and I'm going to read allegorically, I want to be somebody that's doing that immersed in the language of Scripture and not dependent on my subjective imagination to fill in some holes. Um, The latter might sell books and dazzle audiences and 
captivate listeners by suggesting, you know, wild interpretations. But um, it's not going to be a good model for exegesis. It's not going to be a sound hermeneutic. And, um, and therefore, it ought, it ought not to be something we imitate. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, that sort of went oh, off yeah. there now that I'm thinking about yeah. a little small rant. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think that we need to be rightly exhorted and cautioned in these kinds of reading strategies uh, as readers. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think pastors are storytellers. And so naturally, as a, as a pastor, you want to make a connection to your, you know, your, your church. So they tend to do that sort of thing a, a lot. Um, but as you mentioned, as you were talking uh, about the, the Pharisees being the brood of vipers, it reminded me uh, Jesus actually said that they were going to be judged by the people of Nineveh. And he said yeah. that it would be judged by the, the queen of Sheba. So he, is that an example of allegory where he took, um, I don't know, is, is, is that allegory or is that, what is that? Well, I probably wouldn't word it as allegory. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus says that, in Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I think Jesus is trying to identify the great accountability that his contemporaries have in front of them because the, the one who's greater than Solomon has arrived. And even the queen of Sheba was someone from the nations who acknowledged Solomon's greatness. Here are Jesus's contemporaries who see his wonders and miracles, who listen to his wisdom and authority. And they, there is such widespread rejection of Christ among the Jewish contemporaries and leaders. Um, Jesus even appealed to Sodom and Gomorrah that he says would have repented at this day and that um, and, and that they would have repented if the miracles is it Sodom and Gomorrah. My mind is thinking of a different. I think it's a different passage, but he, but he, yeah, he yeah, does yeah. say that. Yeah. In, in uh, Matthew 12, he says um, the queen of the South in verse 42, but in a different passage, not the same one. It's in chapter 11 in Matthew 11. He says, if the mighty works done in you had been done at Tyre and Sidon or you Capernaum, um, will you be exalted? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So he's trying to, I think, show the escalation of accountability and reckoning and horror of rejecting him, even though there was judgment in the Old Testament. And the Queen of Sheba in Matthew 12 is reported as having recognized Solomon. In the days of the Christ, there's a greater expectation of judgment because he's greater than Solomon and the seriousness of rejecting him is greater than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I, I think that that is more a typological connection in my, in my estimation. Sure. Yeah. Between yeah. Solomon and Christ. But yeah. um, I, I was just thinking because there's obviously a lot of, um, you know, he was very clear that, that non-Jewish people would, would, would come. That's right. To, to believe in him. Um, and I'm sure by that point there were, were many. So it just seems like there's a connection between Sheba and the people of Nineveh and those, you know, those contemporary uh, yeah. Gentiles. I, I think you're right, man, for sure. And I think you could point to uh, even in the in the book of that in the book of Exodus, you have out coming out of Egypt are not only Israelites, 
you have uh, in Exodus 12, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, around yeah. verse 40 or 42, this statement about a mixed multitude came mm-hmm. out of Egypt with them. Now, sometimes these non-Israelites are going to be a problem for the actual Israelites in the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this in Numbers chapter 11, uh, but nonetheless, um, they symbolize, they anticipate a grafting in of nations, a grafting in of Gentiles. You see um, Gentiles like Rahab, Gentiles like Ruth, um, people coming to see Solomon, like the Queen of Sheba, and others besides her. All all of this escalates to the ministry of Christ, where people are Gentiles who are in the promised land that come to him, people who are north and east and south of the promised land who come to him. You have a, a streaming in, if you will, of what the Old Testament had anticipated, you know, and prophesied. It's coming to pass inaugurated in that sense in the ministry of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's incredible. Um, okay, so I, I wanted to ask you, well, I mean, I guess you already mentioned um, the pattern in the Exodus with the promised land. Um, what about the, the conquering, the actual conquering of, of the land? Well, I think that the conquering of the land can be um, something we we think of with Christ's miracles, that the conquering of the land is done, you know, southern part of the land, northern part of the land, and Joshua and his uh, Israelite army are subduing enemies. And ultimately, the victory is the Lord's. Um, we even find cases like in Jericho, where God himself accomplishes victory apart from the actual hand-to-hand combat or mm-hmm. military overthrow to show mm-hmm. God's supreme power. Right. Now, um, in the in the ministry of Christ, you have Jesus going throughout the promised land. He's in the north. He's in the south. He's performing miracles, but he's not subduing the city of Jericho or Ai. He is overcoming blindness and deafness and muteness and paralysis and fever and demonic possession and death itself. He's forgiving sin and casting out uh, demons by his great authority and pronouncing pardon as if he is God himself. Uh, these these are conquest uh, events. In other words, mm-hmm. the ministry of Christ is a ministry of conquest and victory and authority, all glory being to God alone. Now, salvation is of the Lord in the Old Testament, and the conquest of Christ is a testimony that salvation is of the Lord in the New Testament. That does not change. Then you have in the building up of the church and the spread of the gospel, a kind of conquest where the church are the meek who inherit the earth. And we um, even conquer uh, and receive the crown of life. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, to the churches, he talks about those who are conquering being those who conquer by the blood of the Lamb. And uh, Revelation chapter 12 talks about this. They love not their lives unto death, and Mm. they conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Mm. The victory of the church is not waged by chariots and horses and spears. Mm but by the humble spread of the gospel, suffering and martyrdom, and the building up of the church of Christ by the power of God. Again, all glory being to God, salvation being from God alone. Uh, The imagery of conquest then is very hope-giving. It's hope-giving for the ministry of Christ, which has then brought about through the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church and the filling of the church with his spirit, and the promise of building his church unto his return. We are a victorious people. Paul says we are more than conquerors mm. through Christ, wow. and we will inherit the earth. Uh, so we are we are a people looking unto a promised land, and the mm. builder and maker is God. Mm. 
Wow, 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 that's so rich. I love that. So this will be uh, my last, it's really my last question um, yeah. as far as uh, building the temple, which kind of really piggybacks off of yeah. th this this concept of, of conquering land. Um, uh, so how is, how is building the temple allegorical? This building the temple theme seems to represent from the very beginning um, a sense of God's presence and fellowship and communion with the people that starts in Eden. Think of Eden as a proto-temple. We mentioned Michael Morales's book um, earlier that he wrote on the book of Leviticus, uh, who, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, I think, or the temple mountain of the Lord, mountain, who yeah. can ascend the mountain of the Lord. Um, I, I always feel like I butcher the title, but the book is amazing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in this, I think he shows, as other scholars have convincingly, that Eden is a proto-sanctuary. When Eden is the place now uh, that is vacant of image bearers because Adam and Eve are exiled and we've all been exiled in them corporately, we are people longing to dwell in the presence of God. We have been made to know God and to fellowship with God and tabernacle temple imagery are a way of recapturing Eden. The tabernacle in Exodus and the temple in 1 Kings 8 to 10, these are places of dwelling place, manifest glory and presence amidst sinners. The reason this is a big deal is because the tabernacle and the temple represent God's presence. That's what it means. The uh, lampstand in the holy place, the bread of presence on the table. It tells us uh, this is communion with God. He's left the lights on. He's got food on the table. The priests come in, if you will, to represent the people of God, and God invites them into his house. Um, even behind the veil, the high priest will go, though once a year he will still go into that most holy place, into the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne, uh, the, the um, uh, footstool of God, that where the mercy seat lid is upon the Ark. This is God's presence, his rule, his authority, his uh, royal and kingly stature and majesty among the, the sinning Israelites. And um, not just with the temple artifacts and structure, but even the pillar of cloud by, uh, by day and the fire by night that's mm -hmm. over the temple and uh, or the, over the tabernacle and that guides the people into the promised land where the temple will be built. The uh, rending of the temple veil at the death of Christ, this certainly seems to symbolize what his body has just experienced. His body has just been broken and given for our sake. And he, he has accomplished atonement. And only the high priest would go behind the veil on the day of atonement. So when the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom, I think it is a, an announcement theologically, that uh, atonement has been accomplished. When we, when we think of the temple and tabernacle elements and, and institutions, we have to think about the deeper figurative sense that these things represent in the Old Testament of dwelling with God. And that what Christ has come to do, uh, and I know you believe this, Samuel, uh, we, we as Christians celebrate that our Savior is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we come to God by Him, and that He is the temple for his people. Um, he said that, uh, destroy this body and in, or destroy this temple. He said, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And he was talking about his very body. Um, he has come to dwell among us, fulfilling all that those earlier temple institutions and tabernacle realities, uh, foreshadowed. So it's great news. If we read the temple and tabernacle before it in light of the whole canon, we are, we're going to have to talk about Christ yeah, and yeah. we're going to have to go all the way back to Eden and see what sin has alienated us from 
which Christ restores in our fellowship with the triune God. It is a beautiful thing, and it's possible because in a canonical reading of these stories, these various elements and artifacts and institutions, they have the deepest and richest meaning in light of what God would do in Christ. Yeah, yeah, it's so incredible. Um, yeah, just to give a, a reading endorsement for your book, I mean, we, we're able to just give a few examples, um, but you you really give so, 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 so much more um, in, in your book. So I'll put links for anyone that's more interested uh, digging into this topic, but... Um, Thanks. And, you know, if, if you want to just get excited about the Word of God um, and, again, make those connections between the new and old, this is this is one of those things um, that, uh, man, it's just, it's awe-inspiring. Um, and uh, it's just incredible to see uh, all these connections and just really get you um, uh, speechless almost uh, to, to, <laughs> just, to see how how incredible the, the word of God is, but, um, Amen. anyway, so that, that is, that's really it as far as the questions I had for you. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I'll invite you to kind of give any, any closing thoughts or words, um, uh, on the topic and, okay. uh, I'll have you close this out in, in prayer. All right. Well, before closing prayer, I think closing thoughts would just include the importance of reading the Bible as a whole story from Genesis to revelation as Christian scripture, two testaments, united together, inspired by the divine author through all of the human authors for our good, for our edification. And then as we read the scriptures, we need to have the same kind of assumptions about the nature of the Bible that those throughout the great tradition have held. And that is to see it as a book given by God for the people of God, for our devotion, for our instruction, and ultimately to point to Christ. When we read the Old Testament, um, we're going to have to think then about uh, language like typology and how things foreshadow and anticipate Christ. I would love people to join me in that effort. I would love people to read the book and be helped by it and that it stimulate uh, our thinking on how to be faithful interpreters uh, to see Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, I'd be I'd be glad to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness in your word, where you make clear the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, fulfilled and announced in the new. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates and helps us and strengthens us as readers to behold and love what we see in your word. Grant us delight and devotion that as we read together in the Old and New Testaments, individually in our times of devotion, or corporately in the hearing and preaching of your word in your congregations. May your word accomplish in us what seed in fertile soil would. May it bear fruit in our lives, fruit of holiness and fear of the Lord, fear of wisdom and love, love for you, love for neighbor, and for your glory. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.